Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. This is a new segment that I'm doing with some very good friends of mine from the law firm Lyles Parker. And we're calling it Legal with Lyles Parker. It's very original. Took me a lot of time to work on. Actually, I had Legal with Lyles, and Robert's like, don't put all this pressure on me to do it by myself. Call it Lyles Parker so I can bring other people in to suffer through your podcast with me. Right, Robert? Exactly. <laughs> so I am joined by the infamous Robert Lyles and the always wonderful Ashley Morgan Hudson. Do I go do I call you by your last name Hudson or do I go by Morgan? Hudson is my maiden name, so just Morgan. It's fine. Oh. So Ashley Morgan. Okay. So I got it all wrong. I'm it's it's a Monday on a Tuesday, apparently. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> last week, um, I had an opportunity to do a blog post because I get a lot of direct messages. I get a lot of questions each and every single day. Um, I get client interactions asking me what do different things mean, you know, or telling me. You know, I was told X, Y, and Z, and I spend a lot of time trying to go through and unravel the ball of yarn that is typically created by those who kind of have some sense of understanding of what it is, but not a thorough enough understanding to where they can give proper guidance to somebody. So when it comes to issues on the law, uh, I always like to reach out to my very good friends. So the topic or topics for today are Medicare suspensions and or revocations. So let me let me start with Ashley first, because Ashley, I know you do a lot of work in the revocation space. I know you do a lot in the suspensions in the suspension area, Mm -hmm. but you've had a lot of success in working on revocations and you've actually gotten some overturned. And quite an expedited period of time. So let me stop there and let me have you explain to our audience, what is a revocation and what is the process for going through the appeal of a revocation? Sure. So a revocation is when CMS actually takes an affirmative action to revoke a, a provider's Medicare number, which means a provider can no longer provide services for Medicare beneficiaries. They can no longer um, see patients and no longer receive reimbursements. They can be um, retroactive. Um, In some cases, for example, if a provider is being revoked based on a felony, um, they can revoke back to the date of the um, felony conviction, or they can um, 
typically be um, 30 days from the date of the revocation letter. So you've got 30 more days to participate in Medicare and then you're done. And you cannot participate in Medicare while you are revoked and you have to go through the appeals process without receiving any reimbursement for Medicare. Uh, and the, you do have an appeal. It's called the first level of appeal is a reconsideration appeal. That's also the evidentiary bar. Um, so that's your first level of appeal. And then you go to an administrative law judge from that. And it can be um, it can take time. Uh, sometimes we've been able to expedite them, but they have like 90 days to issue a reconsideration decision. So, you know, that. If you have 60 days to appeal and then uh, 90 days for a decision, that's already a significant amount of time for a provider that's not able to provide any services for Medicare beneficiaries. So, John, during, Sean, during COVID, the, the, there was a huge uptick in revocation mm -hmm. actions, many of which were associated with, uh, with telehealth. Mm -hmm. and, that's right. And Ashley... You know, she went through a whole string of wins uh, handling those. I think that year in 2021, I think we what you got 21 at least yeah. mm -hmm. revocations overturned. Yes, and um, very quickly as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. but, but it was kind of a different time. You have to understand with regard to revocations, the rules changed a few years ago. Mm -hmm. There used to be a, a, a revocation action used to be for up to three years. And uh then they changed the rules so that they could go up to 10 years. And they also, you know, doubled the number of bases upon which a revocation action could be taken. The result of that has been in the last year, we've seen, you know, CMS may have been hesitant at first to impose a 10 year bar, but not anymore. And, and that's the problem is that, that um, uh, a revocation action now is a lot more serious in many respects than even a suspension action mm -hmm. because if you're revoked for 10 years and you go through the administrative appeals process and, and don't prevail and and it's a, it's a lot harder now to prevail than it was when they first expanded the scope of, of uh, the regulation it's a lot tougher to win now uh, but a 10-year bar is is really tough mm -hmm. well so I agree with you, and and I, there's so many things I want to unpack there. But Ashley, you use the term an affirmative action, mm -hmm. right? So I, I know I have a lot of lawyers that listen to this show, um, but I also have a lot of folks who are non-legal. So can you quickly define what you mean by an affirmative action with respect to, you know, the law, you know, the law, you know, the OIG taking you know, affirmative actions or, or DOJ or something like that. So I kind of qualify that as like a final decision. Um, that That's like a final decision for Medicare. And it's, it's in it's 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 in place while you're appealing it. That's that's what I mean. Um, that you're you're revoked. You're not. We're not pushing out the timeline during during our appeal. Yeah. You know, I, for me, I one of the things that is absolutely maddening, and I'd love to get both of your take on this. One of the things for me that is absolutely maddening about the healthcare system when it comes to the legal process is that it completely abandons the judicial system in that in the judicial system, you are innocent until proven guilty by either your peers or a judge, right? And you go through a trial, you go through all of the motions, but in healthcare, you are guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. And 
for me, I struggle with that because <clears throat> while there's bad actors, and I don't think any of us would disagree with that, while there are bad actors, they make up such a small micro segment of the provider population. I believe that 98% of all providers out there are trying to do the right thing, are doing the right thing. They're just trying to make a living. You know, the 80s Mercedes are over. You know, they're dealing with legal issues. They're dealing with clinical issues. They're dealing with HR issues. They're dealing with business issues. And, you know, the ability for them to function as a pure clinician has been stripped from them in many regards. And they're forced to wear all of these different hats. And, and there's so many reasons why, obviously, we could, we could talk about. Help me to um, help me to 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 explain the pay and chase model because I think pay and chase is the foundation of all of the problems with reimbursement in healthcare. Robert, Ashley, one of you guys want to take that one? Well, let me let me start. When when they passed Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, it's not like it was a welcome change to the system. There was a lot of opposition. And, and uh, the AMA, which was a very different organization in those days um, than, than it is today, there was, they were not happy about this at all. Um, uh, neither were the, the insurance companies at the time. And one of the ways that Congress kind of sold this whole program was, look, we're not trying to, to uh, uh, hold up your payments. We're not trying to make it harder for you to get paid. In fact, it's just the opposite. We want you to take care of seniors and the underprivileged and you bill us and we'll pay you. And if we have questions about those bills later on, we'll come back and ask you. So a lot of it, I believe, was kind of a, a, a practical sale, if, 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 if you will. They really wanted this program to work. And this was the best way to pitch it. To make, make it where, you know, this is not going to be government bureaucracy where you're never going to get paid. You know, you don't have to see these people and wait six months to get a check. No, no, no. Just the opposite. You see them, you bill us, we pay you. If we have right. questions later on, we'll let you know. The problem is <clears throat> the later on was never defined. And right. the, 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 if we have questions was never defined because they came up with terms or they use terms like for good cause. Well, and, I think for the first decade or so, it, it went without a hitch. Right. And then the government realized they were getting ripped off. So they started, you know, digging in. Yeah. I mean, look, there's always been schemesters and, 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 and bad actors, you know, throughout the history of the Medicare, Medicaid structured commercial insurance programs. Right. Um, you know, unfortunately, whenever you give somebody an inch, they're going to try to take a mile uh, if they have bad intentions. I, I believe that the government has to, at some point, sit down and evaluate the model. And it's been a problem, regardless of whether you've been a Republican administration or a Democrat administration. They've all kicked the can down the road, meaning, you know, from the standpoint of changing the pay and chase structure. I think they need to have better upfront mechanisms 
to be able to capture. I, one of the things that I've always thought of, and and you know, Robert, you know, I, I, I was, um, you wrote a, a letter of uh, uh, reference for me, a character uh, uh, reference when uh, I was being uh, asked to consider a government position um, with the VA. And, you know, one of the things that I was seriously thinking about was, you know, why, why would we not eliminate these sliding scales for evaluation and management services and say, listen, the fair reimbursement for a patient at the highest end is X. The fair reimbursement for a patient at the bottom end is Y. Let's just agree at this dollar amount right here. And we'll call it a day. So whether you bill me a level two, a level three, a level four, or a level five, I really don't care. I'm going to pay you the same amount. Would that not eliminate a lot of concern about fraud, abuse, waste by having some structure, you know, to a reimbursement system that's obviously completely broken and leaves so much latitude for, you know, uh, people to make subjective uh arguments i know it's early in the morning that may have been a lot i apologize you know the problem i think with that approach is that the people that that want to take advantage of the system are going to take advantage of the system and they're going to get the median level and the folks that are providing the high level super complex work are going to feel put upon because Mm -hmm. they're getting paid at, at 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 this you know the same as the people that are probably not doing what they're supposed to be doing you know, so, but, but, but we're eliminating the, what you're supposed to be doing. And we're saying you're seeing a patient. Yeah. See, for me, I, I look at it and I think to myself, you know, from a practical standpoint, okay, I'm a simple minded guy. I look at it and I say, listen, if paying me one set amount, irrespective of whether I do a two or a five is going to eliminate the scrutiny of my medical records yeah. to determine whether or not I spent 10 minutes with the patient or 30 minutes with the patient or whether my medical decision-making is moderate complexity or straightforward. I look at that and I go, look, if it's 150 bucks on the high end and it's $75 on the low end, and they're going to pay me a hundred bucks in the middle, how am I losing? Right? Because I'm probably, if I'm coding correctly, I should have a nice physician distribution analysis, right? A bell curve on all of my levels of service. So I'm probably coming out about right, depending on my specialty, but I, I get where you're coming from. It's just a, one of those, one of those thoughts. I have. Not a good answer. There's just not a good answer. And, mm-hmm. and the problem is, and this is really the fundamental problem that you raised yeah. is we're requiring doctors to become billers and coders mm-hmm. and they don't want to be billers and coders. They want to be doctors. But, and, but don't they have a responsibility to be coders and billers? Well, because remember, they sign an attestation on the back of a 1500 form that says everything I'm billing you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. Am I wrong? They, they absolutely have an obligation to make sure that what is turned in is correct. The problem is the, the med schools, they're not teaching them anything about the business of medicine. Mm-hmm. And they come out of there and they've never had a single course on documentation, billing or coding. And we expect them to understand what these rules are going to be. And these are things that, Sean, you've been doing this for almost 30 years. Yeah. And you know, the rules change all the time, which is one of the reasons why I like healthcare, of course. But yeah. 
how can we expect a doctor to keep up with these things when we have a hard time keeping up with these these changes? Mm -hmm. No, that's that's, a, that's, that's a, my concern. That's a fair statement, but the government tells you that you should have known, right? Uh, well, that's right. I mean, you know, the, you, you don't have to play in the you you do not. There is no law that says that you must be a participating provider in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. That's true. That's right. If, if you want to do cash and carry, you're free to do so. But what I tell people all the time, you take all of the headaches of Medicare, right? And they're still your most consistent payer of any payer mm -hmm. out there. Um, Ashley, let me, let me come back to you. Cause Robert, you know, I know we're talking about revocation and, and suspension, but th this is actually blossomed into a great conversation because the coding billing documentation all ties into the reasons why providers get their numbers revoked or their, their payments suspended for Medicare. One of the things I love about Lyles Parker and, and that I think makes you all so unique from so many other law firms is that there's a requirement for all attorneys working in the life sciences or in the healthcare division to at least at a minimum hold a certified professional coder. That's an accurate statement, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You guys had to think about that one for a minute. That should have been like, absolutely, Sean. Um, so do you, cause I know you do audits yourselves mm -hmm. of your client's documentation. Do you not find that when the physician or the practitioner, the NP or PA does their own coding, that the level of accuracy tends to be higher since they are the person who is ultimately in the room with the patient at the time the services are rendered and they are best to determine the complexity of what transpired in that room, which ultimately leads to the CPT code. Am I overstating that? Uh, the only thing I would say is that I also think that while they probably are coding it correctly, it's not always necessarily true that the documentation reflects everything that they know in their head when they're coding it. So, so I agree with you. And, and I think those are two separate issues, right? You know, coding and documentation are always, and, and that's one of the things that I always find myself having to explain to a judge or a jury is that, listen, when you see two sentences on a sheet of paper from a clinician, that can mean pages of information in the clinical world. But when a non-clinical person looks at it, we see two sentences written mm -hmm. and it's hard for us to, you know, um, it's hard for us to um, extrapolate that into something more than what we actually see on the paper because we're not clinical. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a whole other problem that the payers have with who does their audits. Yeah. But um, so let's go back to the revocations for just a moment, Ashley. What, when a provider is first notified that they are placed onto a revocation, mm -hmm. What recourse do they have? Is there is there a 15-day period in which they can send a rebuttal letter? Is there some type of administrative process that could take place to 
halt that while you're making your arguments? So for revocation, no, um, there is not. A revocation, if you are revoked under A1, which is for non-compliance, then you do have an opportunity to submit a corrective action plan, but that's a very limited scope of um, revocation reasons. Um, but you're still revoked even, even then. You're still revoked. You have 30 days to submit a corrective action plan. You're still revoked the entire time that they're considering that. And um, for, all, for A1 and for all other revocation reasons, you have an opportunity to submit a request for reconsideration within 60 days. But again, you're still revoked that entire time while you're preparing that <clears throat> request for reconsideration and while it's pending. Um, so no, there's no, once that, uh, um, once that revocation action has been put in place, there's no stopping it unless you have a successful uh, reconsideration decision. And the revocations, are those typically the result of a UPIC investigation? Or could it come from the MAC or could it come from all of the above? All of the above. Uh, we see a variety of different reasons. Um, sometimes there, it's it's interesting. You can see that there might be like a special project that they're working on because we'll see numerous revocations for the same reason. For example, a couple of years ago, like Robert said, we saw a ton of, of revocations related to telemedicine. We've seen a stream of them related to felony actions. We are seeing them now based on a <clears throat> pattern or practice of billing errors, which is related to UPICs. Um, if the provider's been um, under a UPIC audit a couple times and they haven't appealed or they haven't had good results, then we've seen um, CMS or the MAC taking action um, and revoking a provider for that. Um, so it can be a variety of reasons. Um, there does tend to be patterns sometimes, but it can be uh, a variety of reasons. And, and I, ahead, I would Robert, like to please. focus on one thing that Ashley just said that's so important. A lot of these revocation actions and the suspension actions, for that matter, they do result because the provider did not appeal. Mm -hmm. You pick mm -hmm. on it, whether it's a probe sample, you know, they'll, they'll say it was only three or four claims. It doesn't matter. That's if right. you don't appeal those denials, they, now they, they say, you know, when we were kids, they talked about it's going to go on your permanent record. It does. Mm -hmm. yeah. You get a couple small situations like that, and we have seen that result in a suspension action, and in some cases, a revocation. So it's so important that if you have a probe sample and they deny everything, if you disagree with those findings, I'm not saying you appeal everything just because, but if you disagree with those findings, you really need to be availing yourself of the appeals process. Yeah, I've had a lot of providers who have said to me, you know, Sean, it's 500 bucks or it's $1,000. It'll cost me yep. five times that amount to have you or 10 times that amount to have a law firm handle this for me. And I mm -hmm. always try to explain to them, those who don't fight back, open themselves up to being easier targets in the future and to more extensive actions taken against them. That's right. In and, the future. and there are multiple references in the program integrity manual to what we're talking about, where, you know, they talk about, you know, a history of prepayment or postpayment audits where they found that there was a significant error rate. That's right. and I, I, it goes across the board on the different types of actions that they say you can take. Yep. It's just, it's really important that you exercise your rights. Yeah, two, two, two chapters that I would point out to our listeners that I think are, they, they really make the arguments for what Robert and Ashley are talking about today in the Program Integrity Manual. The first one is chapter three of the Medicare Program Integrity mm -hmm. Manual, because this focuses on adverse actions. This focuses on prepayment, postpayment reviews. It focuses on 
um, the scope of medical record reviews, who can perform it, credential files of the auditors and the contractors and things of that nature. But to what Robert just said, chapter eight, section 8.4.2 specifically talks about statistical sampling, right? And that's a huge area that if you are going through an audit where there's been a quote unquote statistically valid sample resulting in an extrapolation of damages, in order for the government to be able to use a statistically valid sample against a medical practice, in 8.4.2, it says they have to show proof that either prior education has failed or the provider has a history of a sustained or high error rate at or above 50%. So very important to understand what the requirements of the Program Integrity Manual are. And Robert, that was such a great a, a great thing to bring up. Last question, Ashley, with revocations, and then I want to go to Robert and I want to talk about suspensions because they're they're really different in how mm -hmm. these are handled. At least I think so. Um, have you seen with revocations referrals being made to the composite medical boards? Not generally, no. I, I do not typically see that. Although it can be, it can ultimately be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Excellent. And it will, it will ultimately get reported there. And in the National Provider Data Bank, mm -hmm. that is where all insurance companies go to take a look at who has been sanctioned or kicked out of the program and what it was for, and then that allows them basically to open up their own investigation. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, Robert. Your turn. Let's talk about suspensions. Okay. So Medicare suspensions, at least for me, I I, I feel these are very different than revocations. Um, but the first question that I have for you is, what administrative mechanisms exist for providers who are put on a Medicare suspension? All right. Well, most suspensions... The, the CMS has a couple of different ways they can do it. They can give you notice of, a, of an upcoming suspension action, or they can just impose it. 99% uh, of all suspensions, the first time you find out about it is you'll get a call from your, your, your revenue people saying something's wrong. Our checks aren't coming through. Mm -hmm. uh, they almost always find out about it long before they get the written notice in the mail. Now, with a suspension action, I have to tell you, 10 years ago, suspension actions were, they weren't as frequent as they are today. And I consider them to be much more serious in, in when they would impose them 10 years ago. Today, the bar, in my opinion, is quite low. They, they will go after, they will suspend somebody because they have two um, uh, uh, probe audits that went bad or a TPE audit that went bad. It, it's, it, they use that to springboard onto a suspension action. And the problem, of course, with suspensions is that if you are suspended, there is no administrative appeal to a suspension. You can file a rebuttal mm -hmm. within 15 days. Now, I will tell you that for the most part, they're pretty good about giving you some extra time if you need it, but you have to go in and you have to you know, get that extension. But the fact is, Statistically, most rebuttals fall flat on their face. And we've had cases where they will cite four or five claims in, in the suspension letter for the, the reasons for the suspension. 
Uh, used to be, by the way, uh, Ashley can tell you this, most of the suspension actions used to be based on improper billing practices, mm -hmm. and those types of things. Now they love using the F word, you know, the, the credible allegation of fraud. Mm -hmm. okay? And that comes up all the time and everything, even if it's a billing problem, the way they describe it is it's fraud. Anyway, most of the time a rebuttal is not successful. Um, Ashley has, um, she's had some good luck lately. She just got one suspension overturned mm -hmm. after submitting a rebuttal, but that's, that's not something you should expect. That's something that, that is a few and far between. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with suspensions also, and, and you talked about how suspensions are very different from revocations. With revocations, as we talked about, there is a way, there is an appeals process, and there is an opportunity, frankly, we've had a lot of luck engaging directly with CMS counsel to try to negotiate some kind of fair resolution, okay? That's something, that's an opportunity you have with revocations that you don't have, of course, with suspensions. But they are kind of kissing cousins, even though they're so different, because there are a number of bases under the revocation rules that allow you to revoke a provider that has been put on payment suspension. And I, I, I talk about payment suspension because remember, with, with revocation, you're out. You can't see the patients. You can't treat the patients. You can't bill for the patients. That's not the case with suspensions. If you're suspended, you can still see a Medicare patient. You can still treat that patient. You can bill for that patient. Okay. Now, those monies that you would normally be paid, you don't get them. They go right. over into an escrow fund, which is a whole other kettle of fish that we have to talk about because there's all kinds of problems with crediting that later on after they do a post-payment audit. Okay. But the, the, my point though is suspensions, you can still see the patients and treat the patients. The problem, of course, is most suspensions, they take place um, for a minimum of, of at least 180 days, as you pointed out in the beginning. Uh, they really take, but really what they do is they take place as long as it takes a UPIC to initiate and complete a post-payment audit, mm -hmm. because they're trying to see how much money does this provider owe, you know, and they take the position, if we know now that whatever they were doing was wrong, we have a good reason to believe that what they were doing previously is also wrong. So we need to do a post-payment audit. Okay. But what we're seeing though is with a, a portion of these suspension actions is um, right when the, the client is having to deal with the suspension, then they also receive notice of revocation. And that's just, that's the, the, that's the death knell because uh, it's hard enough to survive with no Medicare monies coming in with a suspension action, but it's almost impossible once you've been revoked. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you feel that the UPICs have been given too much latitude to impose suspensions and or revocations? Well, theoretically, they, they, they have a lot of latitude when it comes to recommendations. Uh, all of these suspension actions and revocation actions are supposedly signed off by CMS. There's, there's a panel that gets together and they, they sign off on them. But I, you know, there's no way for us to tell, of course. I would love to do a FOIA request and find out how many CMS says no. Yeah. I suspect yeah. that it's more of a rubber stamp situation. Yeah, that, that's, that's where I was going with it. Um, be, because, you know, I, I, I have seen where a UPIC investigation has wrapped up on a Friday and by Tuesday the client has received a letter indicating 
they're on suspension, excuse me, on suspension yeah. or their number's been revoked. And I think to myself, there is no way we're talking about the government here. Our mm. government is not that efficient. There is no way something concluded on a Friday and by Tuesday they received a letter. That letter was already written and stamped probably five days prior. Um, so what I had an interesting case and, um, I actually told the client, you know, they, they, their insurance company, uh, wanted them to use an attorney, which is common, right? Cause they have negotiated rates with law firms, but what a lot of, what a lot of practices, a lot of providers don't realize is that you are not bound to use the attorney that the insurance company wants you to use. You have the right to pick your own counsel, right? Mm -hmm. To have qualified representation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But they will put a lot of pressure on these folks to use their, their list. The problem with that is um, that most of these insurance companies, of course, I mean, these policies are really malpractice policies That's that right. include a rider that covers administrative audits, okay? And, you know, these are malpractice insurance companies. And who, so who do they use? They use attorneys that do malpractice defense. That's well, right. those guys really don't live in our world. We don't live in theirs. Yeah. We, yeah. Don't do, we don't do medical mal. We don't do personal injury. We only do the healthcare regulatory defense. So that's why I'm always hesitant about them being forced to use one of their panel attorneys, you know, maybe they're great, but they really need to do a lot of due diligence before they ever agree to that. If someone, and, and this is what I tell all our clients, if, if an attorney hadn't handled your kind of case 25 or 30 times, you need to find another attorney. Absolutely. And the, and, and the thing that happened here, it was so mesmerizing to me. The thing that happened here was the attorney missed the 15 day window for the rebuttal mm. never filed a rebuttal i got called and the provider's practice has already been on suspension for almost a year and the first question that i asked was can i see the letter of rebuttal that was supposed to be written within the first 15 days or any motion to request an extension to submit the rebuttal after 15 days <clears throat> and come to find out a rebuttal letter had never been written because the attorney did not realize that they had the right to a rebuttal. And what they wound up doing was just writing this strongly worded letter, you know, uh, cautioning them that, you know, the, the provider's rights were violated or whatever it is. Something like that goes to CMS and, and some chucklehead's going to pick it up and look at it and be like, are you kidding me, please? And they'll pass yeah. it up the line. Mm -hmm. That's a really bad idea for a number of reasons not to respond. As, as Ashley could tell you, because she does these every day, most of the current suspensions we're seeing are based on credible allegation of fraud. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're almost all referrals from a UPIC or a UPIC's in the picture somewhere. Okay. If you do not respond at all, that is going to raise the level of concern Remember, this is this is referred by a UPIC, and their job is to ferret out fraud and abuse. 
So they're looking for a reason to try to sell this to OIG or to DOJ. And if you do not dispute the fact that you have been accused of fraud, that's really a bad, bad practice in mm -hmm. my opinion. Okay? I agree. Ashley, yeah. can you kind of talk some more about what we're seeing with, with regard to, to, to those referrals to OIG and DOJ? Yeah, I mean, we definitely do see that the UPICs are communicating with other agencies, um, even with state agencies now as well. Um, but we see, you know, we, we see a provider get a suspension notice. It always has typically, you know, it's all the ones I've told Robert, every suspension notice that I've seen since they started doing audits again post COVID. So since like June of 2020, they've all been based on a credible allegation of fraud. Even though when you read the actual suspension notice, it looks like it's an overpayment. Um, it's just, you know, the medical records didn't um, meet the LCD requirements. That's not fraud. Um, but it's, it's important to come back and say, actually, I do meet the medical record requirements and you've not given me any evidence of fraud in your um, statement you pick because we really do see, because we, we like to file for FOIA request because they don't give you any information. So we like That's to file a FOIA request. And we sometimes get really in interesting information back on these FOIA requests. Like we've gotten full OIG files back. We've gotten advanced case track um, logs back that show that they are actively communicating with the OIG, with the DOJ, with state agencies saying, these are this is the information that we are getting through our audits. This is our history of this provider's entire record in Medicare. These are previous companies that they've worked for or owned. And that information all gets sent over to, to the different agencies they have. You, you can see where they're having their meetings and talking about this information, which they're supposed to do under the manual. So they are actually doing that and talking about it. Yeah. Um, and you can see we've gotten letters from the UPIC sending a, a letter to the state Medicaid office saying, hey, we've paid place this provider on suspension. You need to do that as well. And we've seen providers who don't just get suspended by the state Medicaid office. They get terminated because the state Medicaid office doesn't have a mechanism in place to do a payment suspension. So they just terminate their number. So it's unbelievable. They, yes. Which is a new adverse action that goes in the NPDB and mm -hmm. that goes to the state board. And based on that termination, Medicare can then turn around and revoke them. Mm -hmm. Revoke them. That's right. So it's just a, you know. It's a perfect storm. It is. It just feeds mm -hmm. off each other. Mm -hmm. And if, if you're a provider that's only do, that's doing, you know, only Medicare or a lot of Medicare and Medicaid, I mean, you can't make any money. And you for at least six months, sometimes up to a year, I mean, it, it you're you're done. It's yeah. very hard to survive. There's no way to sustain. There's no sustainability. Yeah. There's no way to maintain your staff to maintain your tail on your malpractice to maintain anything mm -hmm. you might as well just close up shop because your your goose is cooked it mm -hmm. really is yeah. let me let me in in the final moments that we have together for this this episode let me ask you what what would be your walk away advice to other attorneys who are working in the healthcare fraud, waste, and abuse space, but who are newer to it. What are, what would you give as some guidance or recommendations, not to try to strip anything away from you guys, but I think we'd all agree there's enough, there's enough business out there for everybody to stay very busy with the work of the commercial payers and, and, and the uh, government agencies. But what would you give as some recommendation uh, to young and aspiring attorneys who want to work in the healthcare sector for fraud, waste, and abuse? 
I think I would recommend, you know, doing, you know, what our firm does that you mentioned earlier is that you need to really have an understanding and you need to be able to speak the language of these providers. So understanding coding, understanding billing, understanding, you know, compli compliance and you know, possibly getting a certification as a compliance officer. Those are all really important things to help guide your clients when they come in um, so that you can understand you know, the services that they're providing, because if not, you can have a really high level of, you know, understanding about the False Claims Act and Stark and the anti-kickback statute. But for day to day, and especially for these types of audits, you know, you really need to understand what those coverage rules are and what those coding requirements are. And Robert, what guidance would you give to administrators, uh, compliance officers, physician leaders of their organizations regarding how aggressively to respond to these letters that they receive making allegations of impropriety? Well, it's a different world that we live in today in terms of the administrative appeals process even. If you look at the, uh, the statistics that the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals has posted most recently, you'll see, you know, unlike five years ago, the chances of you prevailing at an ALJ are really slim and winning all the claims at an ALJ is, is almost impossible. It's, you know, single digits uh, in terms of the number of those cases that go through. So what I would recommend is you have to understand, you, even if it's a small cert audit, if, if, if it's a, uh, an ADR, uh, a TPE audit, a probe sample, they are all very, very important and you have to pull out all the guns and you have to really respond appropriately. Now, the way that we do that is when they, when we get, when our clients get requests for records for an audit or a data service, you know, most of the time, most providers would just turn in the records. Well, that's not necessarily the best idea without looking at them first. Okay. Mm -hmm. What we do is we actually, since our folks are billers and coders, they're, they're certified uh, uh, coders, but most of them like Ashley, she's also a, certified door. Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what we do is we take that documentation and we do an analysis of, you know, the coverage and payment requirements for that particular claim. And we work up a claim summary and we, we say, here's the requirements for coverage and payment. Here's where each of those requirements are met. Now there's two reasons for doing this, Sean. One is we want to make sure that, that uh, whoever the reviewer is, because you and I both know, Sean, more than likely that reviewer has never even breathe the air of a dermatology practice or a rheumatology practice or whatever it is. Okay. So you have to educate them. Here's what's required. Here's where we meet that. Okay. The other reason though, is a lot of times our documentation is not complete and the practice would have turned in incomplete documentation. So what do you do about that? Well, you may want to go and you may want to get a copy of the referral from the, uh, uh, from the PCP. You may want to get copies of test results that show that this, this um, uh, service was in fact medically necessary. Uh, you may have to get an affidavit, make sure it's not backdated, dated today, you know, but you may need something from the doctor to say, here's why I did what I did. You wanna make sure that you turn in the documentation needed so that a fair assessment of the claim can be conducted by the reviewer, okay? We think that the claim summary approach is the best way to do it because that way, <clears throat> If they're looking for things to, to be met, we're going to show exactly where those requirements have been met. And that's 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 how we 
And that's what I recommend to the administrators and the compliance officers. I mean, you have to take every one of these small reviews or audits very seriously. Absolutely. Because it goes back to what we said before, ignoring and thinking it's just going to go away isn't going to make it go away. If anything, it's going to raise the level of suspicion as to why is this provider ignoring our demands for refund or our notice of concern regarding their documentation, which could lead to more extensive reviews down the line. Right. So that's going to bring us to the end of our episode today, Legal with Lyles Parker. I was joined by Ashley Morgan and Robert Lyles. Always a pleasure to spend time with both of you. Thank you for being on the program today. Thanks for having us. And to each and every single one of you who continues to tune in, log on and just hang out with us. Thank you all so much. Don't forget later this week, I'll be back with Kenneth Polite, the assistant U.S. attorney for and the head of the criminal division at Maine Justice. Um, We have such a great interview coming up. That will be a live streaming video at 11 a.m. on this coming Thursday. I believe that is the 23rd of March. All right. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.